Turn to God's word to Psalm chapter one. Welcome to Equip. Psalm chapter one. No doubt when I said Psalm chapter one, Psalm one rather, it's not chapter, Psalm one, you, your mind was automatically flooded with the Psalm itself and its content. So we're gonna do things a little bit differently this morning. I'll describe that, but really what we're doing today is beginning a series called A Summer in the Psalms. And no doubt the majority of us love the Psalms, right? And I'll just kind of elicit responses from you just to ask, why on earth do we love the Psalms? Obviously it's God's word, so let's start there. But why do, why do they have such a special, sweet place in so many lives? Okay, it brings comfort in the midst of pain and helps us rejoice in God. Excellent, what else? Helps you pray? Praise, okay, pray and praise, okay. Prompts me to praise, informs me how to praise. Uh, my worship is assisted of God, worship of God. Excellent. What else? Yes, you are not alone in your struggle, right? All of those real, raw human emotions, uh, many before you have experienced them, many after you will do the same, right? So um, there are many, many reasons like the ones you've stated that we love the Psalms. We find them to be devotionally accessible, right? Like you mentioned, that's, that's real life, that a condition, a, a situation that that person is traveling through. But also, not only do we find that the Psalms speak to us, but even as you just mentioned, they speak for us, right? They're intensely personal. And so we are in for a rich summer, but we also want to spend uh, appropriate time in order to capitalize on that richness we want to prepare for the road ahead. And so what we're going to do today, it's gonna to be a little bit different than what we're traditionally accustomed to, which is just kind of a verse by verse, by verse look uh, through a particular Psalm. For one of those reasons, we're gonna spend part of our time just really laying the groundwork. We're gonna peer into how we're gonna approach the Psalms. And then we're gonna spend the second part of our time together on a brief journey through Psalm one, paying particularly close attention through one image found within the psalm itself. And our hope and our prayer in doing so is that God would not only position us well, but also launch us into all that he has for us this summer, okay? Uh, let's read Psalm 1 this morning and we'll open in prayer. It reads the following, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God's providence, we're gonna read this here in a few minutes, during the main service because this is our scripture reading as well. So let's open our time in prayer. God, we thank you. We want to be quick to thank you for all that you have in store for us this summer. The ways in which you will encourage us and bless us, enrich our hearts and prompt us to do, even as we've articulated, to worship you more faithfully, more ardently. We ask that you would no doubt use your word. We know and trust that it is profitable and you are speaking to us. You have spoken and we want to avail ourselves to your mercy, your guidance and direction, your instruction. We ask that you would keep us humble, 
that our disposition before you would be teachable and malleable, that you would shape us as you like, deal with us as you please. Lord, we are so grateful to have a place that we can gather and mix and mingle and be in the midst of one another's lives and encourage one another, but also, Lord, joyfully place us ourselves under the authority of your word. We ask that you would bless this time and the weeks to come. We pray for our pastor in advance, that you would fill him with power and conviction as he yet again opens up the book of Hebrews. Uh, Lord, we now thank you for the beautiful day and all of the glory that's to be rendered to you is rightfully yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's start, uh, why study the Psalms, right? Let's just talk about a few benefits that come with studying the Psalms in general, right? There's, there's 150 of them. We're only gonna spend five or six weeks here. So suffice to say, we're not gonna cover all of them, okay? Nevertheless, what are the benefits that come to us? Number one, if you're taking notes this morning, this is in your PowerPoint. You can just write this down, right? We need the big God worship of the Psalms to challenge the shallowness of our thinking about God and his worship, okay? Uh, David, do you have that on the PowerPoint? He's talking, David Anglin. You have that on the PowerPoint? Excellent. The, we need the big God worship of the Psalms to challenge the shallowness of our thinking about God and his worship, and, and his worship okay? Martin Luther called the Psalter a mini Bible, okay? A mini Bible. It gives an overview, this is what Calvin was stating, of salvation history through, from creation through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, through the establishment of the tabernacle and temple, to Israel's exile due to unfaithfulness, and even, in pronounced fashion, points us to that messianic redemption and renewal of all things. The Psalter is a mini-Bible, right? Within this, you have the doctrine of Revelation unpacked, right? Psalm, one, Psalm 19. You have the doctrine of God in Psalm 139. You have the doctrine of human nature, right? Hermardiology, anthropology in Psalm 8. The doctrine of sin in Psalm 14. All of this is found within the Psalter. So that when Martin Luther writes, the Bible is a, the, the Psalter is a mini Bible, we know this to be true. And because of this, what happens? The Psalms help you and I see God, does it not? And see God, not as we wish him to be, but as he's revealed himself to us. And in such revealing, what happens in our lives, we find this God, our God, to be far more holy, far more wonderful and wise and fearsome and more tender and loving than we could ever possibly hope to imagine him to be. <clears throat> this brings, no doubt, a radical effect upon our prayers, I think you mentioned as well as our praise of him, and rightfully so. It gives us big God worship. And we worship this God who has spoken to us. We would do well to worship from a place where we are deeply informed by that which he has spoken. Thus we rest in the instruction of the Psalms itself. Okay, So we need the big God worship of the Psalms to challenge the... the are thinking about God and his worship, which is often shallow. But secondly, we need the Psalms sanctifying effect on the whole of our hearts. The Psalms sanctifying effect on the whole of our hearts. John Calvin stated that the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the human soul, which is an accurate revealing description regarding this section of our Bibles, right? We are complex multi-layered individuals. And some of you are looking around saying some of you are more complex than others, but we're all complex individuals. And that's by God's design. 
There's not a single emotion or response that you can feel in this complexity that doesn't get articulated within the five books of the Psalter. So if you want to start study the parts of the human soul and every part of our experience, you can find every facet of it here in the Psalter. And not only does it connect us to every facet of our hearts, but here's what God does through the Psalms. He uses those Psalms to sanctify our hearts, to make them as they ought to be, and yet not, are, yet not are, already are, right? Our God knows when you're disappointed, when you're discouraged, when you're dismayed and angry and anxious and afraid. Your God knows all of these things. And we bring him dishonor when we try to pretend that those real raw human emotions aren't a part of everyday life, okay? God made us to be complex creatures. He doesn't want us to not feel, okay? I want to be very clear about that. We we swing to the extreme that I, I shouldn't feel emotion at all. No, God doesn't want you to not feel. He simply wants those soul responses to do what? To drive you to himself, right? to cry out to him, to trust him, to depend upon him. And that doesn't come intrinsically natural to us. So we need instruction. We need a guidebook. And so this is one of the many great reasons why we desperately need the Psalms. They train us for every single situation and condition of life, spiritual, emotional, social, and that they transmit our circumstance into the presence of God and they put that, that circumstance into the context of what is true about himself, right? It tells you things that you ought to remember, things that you ought to cling to. And in so doing, it instructs us as to what our attitude should be in any moment and coaches us even in our relationship with a God who is wonderfully faithful to his people, okay? One of the ancient church fathers, Ashenasius, wrote this, whatever your particular need or trouble... From this same book, meaning the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. Isn't that so good? Whatever your particular need or trouble from this same book, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. This is why God's people cherish the Psalms so much. It's because they openly express many of the things that go on in your heart to my heart every single day and in so doing they prove to be a medicine chest of which we find salve to soothe our pain but also a proper guide to help us with the day-to-day life before us we need the sanctifying effect on the whole of our hearts number three we need their realistic response to suffering I think someone mentioned it right brings comfort in the midst of pain. And do the Psalms honestly deal with pain and suffering? Is it all hallelujah, praise the Lord, life is good, nothing's wrong? We don't see that in the Psalter. And so through the Psalter, we need to learn how to lament biblically. Our culture is no doubt uncomfortable with extended grief. We don't know what to do with it apart from God. Dan Allender wrote a piece called The Hidden Hope of Lament, and he wrote this, Christians seldom sing in the minor key. We fear the somber. We seem to hold sorrow in low esteem, yet lament cuts through insincerity, 
strips pretense and reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in odd, robust wonder. I think that was wisely put. The church doesn't like to sing in a minor key. And the sad thing about that is that sometimes this, due to real circumstances of life, that's oftentimes the most appropriate key to sing in, right? Um, in, an, in another life, I had led worship for just shy of a decade, and we used to sing a song, From the Depths of Woe, right? It was basically out of Psalm 130. From the depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. What a line. From the depths of woe, I raise to thee. We need to learn how to lament biblically. This is helpful for the church, I think, today. Our oftentimes, maybe not this church, but just on the whole, our collective impulse is just to encourage people to slap on a smile on their face so that they'll have a positive attitude about what they're passing through. We need to come out of that mindset, right? We need to fight against this dishonesty of living on the surface of things, and we need to be a people who know what it is to lament, but lament biblically. And then in so doing, we hope that not only as we lament biblically, what happens? We find comfort, right, from a God who's loving and faithful and present before us. And this is where the Psalms are so helpful to us. Lament is not only allowed in our Bibles, but it's modeled to us in abundance. And that's where we see this in the Psalter. So I would just ask you a question this morning. You don't even have to really answer. I just kind of want you to ponder. In this space of lamenting biblically, how can grieving Christians... Engage in God-honoring lament rather than mere cathartic venting, right? And there's a big difference, right? Biblical lament versus just cathartic venting, right? How do we engage in that kind of lamenting? Well, the answer, of course, is to let the Psalms of lament shape your prayer of lament, right? To give voice to your pain, your emotion, and your heart. And in so doing, not only do they enable you to be emotionally honest before God, but they also simultaneously, and this is abundantly key, they bring you to the real God, the God of power and wisdom and comfort, right? Because it's not enough just to express your pain. You have to be ushered into God's presence. You have to be reminded of what is true about him, what he's done in the past, how he's exhibited his faithfulness and care, and how he's yet promised to do so and remain so in the future. And the Psalms speak this to you. How often do the Psalms speak out of a point of pain and suffering? And you always notice this about the Psalm. There's always a point, like a turn, turnstile. There's a gate that the psalmist walks through, but my hope is in God, right? Why are you downcast, O my soul, right? Speaking to himself, reminding himself of truth, preaching to himself as it were. We get to be led into the room with that psalm, psalmist and instructed with a, with a friend who has gone before similar things even to us, okay? This is why we need the Psalms. The Psalms give us a voice in our pain and they bring us through the reality of who God is and anchor us there. Prompts you to trust God, find comfort in God, seek solace in God, not grovel and complain and be bitter towards God as well. Lamenting biblically. Number four, We need the gospel undertones of the Psalms, right? 
God's mercy and God's gift of righteousness shines brightly in the Psalms, right? Craig's going to teach from Psalm 22, that messianic psalm. Christ is pointed to in profound fashion throughout the Psalter, right? And not only that, when we avail ourselves to its instruction and we sit before it, what does it do to our worship of Christ, even as we walk through the book of Hebrews? You tell me. Enriches it, it elevates it. All both true, right? I read Psalm 22 and then I open up Hebrews, right? Where Christ is superior to angels and to Moses. And his sacrifice was once for all. Without the shedding of blood, there's not the forgiveness of sins. And the Psalms are even speaking this to us in the Old Testament. And we need this. And not just that, but it also strengthens our commitment to the gospel mission he has given to us, right? You have Psalm 67. May the Lord bless us and be gracious to us and make his face shine upon us, right? Why? That, the, that your way may be known in all the earth and your salvation among all nations. Lord, would you bring it about? Would you make it so? Not my agenda, not my renown, but your renown. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Bring glory. We need the gospel undertones of the Psalms. Fifth and finally, we need the Psalms' corporate emphasis to combat the self-centeredness of our day. We need their corporate emphasis to combat the self-centeredness of our day. I think just by the nature of the structure and the purpose of the Psalms, they're intended to be sung in a community, right? You can sing them individually but they were sung corporately and it's always stressing this community of worshipers and I think that's counter to kind of a modern movement today where kind of spiritual life and Christian living is just kind of dumbed down and reduced to me and Jesus right and you get what people are saying but that's kind of where it rests and there's no semblance of how important community is this in the context of me being faithful in my Christian life and me growing in the likeness of Christ spiritually. So the Psalms combat that self-centeredness, that individualism, right? I served in a context that, that, used, that still had a very pioneer mindset, right? It was part of the country where uh, pioneers came out and established that, that part of our country. And it was still that, that we don't need anyone else but, but me, in my family, in my home, right? You pull into the garage, you don't say hi, you pull out, you go to work, and you do it all over again. No one needs anyone. The psalm, Psalms do not project that to us. These are to be sung corporately. Why? What happens when we sing this corporately to one another? And when we use this in our life among one another? Edifies, builds up. Excellent. What else? Encourages. Same mind, right? There is a supernatural, otherworldly like-mindedness that transpires, right? Excellent. Actually, we're reminded of the truth of Scripture to apply it to our lives. And I think the beauty there, in any given moment, none of us are doing that perfectly. 
So as that's being belted out together and we're speaking these things to us, Randy does that in my life in a moment where I have, I have lost sight. I'm living in a very myopic, earthly cataract sort of fashion, right? And I'm only seeing me. And I'm only seeing my circumstances. And then a brother in Christ comes in and speaks things from the Psalms or from the whole of God's word, really, right? And prompt me to worship as I ought to. Get out of the ditch. Get out of the ditch. That's the beauty of corporate singing, strong corporate singing. Sometimes I just stop and I listen to you because you're ministering to me and we're ministering to each other simultaneously as we worship God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a sweet thing, a rich thing. Just give you a pastoral pause. I, I think this is, we're grateful for the community of believers. We're grateful that in God's wisdom and design, he intended us to worship him in the context of other believers. Just give you a pastoral pause of which I think you already know, but this just underscores the importance of it anew, right? We should be a body of believers. We should be a family of individuals who are instrumental in one another's lives, right? Okay. There should be biblical counseling perpetually being extended to one another. And, and that's great to say, but sometimes it's hard to practice. Let, let, let me just ask you, has anyone ever felt awkward or in, in, inadequate to help someone in, the, in a moment of tragic trial? Anyone been there? Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't even know how I'm going to say it. I know I want to be present, right? I know I want to be with them and I want to love them. But Lord, I feel woefully inadequate. We've all been there, right? We all struggle to know what to say and how to say it. And here's the beauty, I think, of the Psalms. This is the help to us. The Psalms really are a medicine chest. Lord, I don't know what to say or or how to say it. Go to the medicine chest, dig your hand down deep, pull something out, right? And what do you do? You find a Psalm that fits their situation. It's there. And you read it with them and you pray it with them, right? God all of a sudden transforms you from, you know, Wade Grubbs, not knowing what to say and how to say it. Stay here. Open up a psalm. It's a salve to your soul. It speaks wisdom and instruction and reminders of which they need to hear and you need to hear. There is assistance to you. Rely upon them. We need the big God worship of the psalms to challenge the shallowness of our thinking about God and his worship. We need the psalm sanctifying effect on the whole of our hearts. We need the realistic response to suffering. We need the gospel undertones of the psalms, and we need their corporate emphasis to combat the self-centeredness of our day. Let's pivot now and just look kind of at the forest before we dive into the trees in the weeks to come. And look at the Psalter as a whole. Uh, really parking the bus alongside the structure and the purpose of the Psalms because I want us to appreciate the Psalter. And if so, in so doing, what you need to understand is, well, how are the Psalms provided to us? How are they laid out? I will remind you that the Psalter is not a random basket of hymns put together in shotgun order, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit not only orchestrated their construction, but the Spirit of God also orchestrated their placement as well. He did so orderly, and he did so for a reason. You see, the Psalter is not entirely unlike the Pentateuch or the first five books of your Bible in the fact that the Psalter is broken into how many books? Five books. Excellent. And we know this because all five books of the Psalter 
end with that doxology that occurs only at the end of each book, right? And it's sort of like a gigantic exclamation point, a point of punctuation marking the end of every book, okay? Now, a good Bible student asks, well, why were the five books of the Psalter punctuated this way? Why break it down into five books? Well, in comes Psalm 1 for us. It's a gateway, a banner over the remaining 149 psalms. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the Torah, the law of the Lord, and meditates on it day and night. His delight is in the Torah, the law. Torah is, is, is not simply law as in do's and don'ts. That's a very narrow conception of the law, right? The five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're all together called the Torah, the law of God, and yet there are genealogies, there's stories, there's poetry, but it's all called the Torah, the law. And Torah simply means instruction. Herein is why the book of Psalms was broken into five. Just like the book of Moses was broken into five and used for our instruction, so are the five books of the Psalter. You see, the Psalter is not just Israel's hymn book. The Psalter is an instruction manual for you. And we ask, well, an instruction manual for what? Well, look at the first word of Psalm 1. The very first word, your probably translation says how blessed, but the first word there is ashray, right? Blessed. That means literally well-being in every area of your life. Anyone sign up for that? Well-being for every area of life. Here's the point. Ashray, the Psalter begins. The Psalter teaches you how to live in such a way that you experience more and more of the abundant life that God not only created for you designed for you in creation, but also purpose for you in redemption. They teach you how to live. It's an instruction manual as well as a hymn book. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, right? Now, anyone enjoying the full perfection of that abundant life in the here and now? No, okay? That is yet to be enjoyed in a life still to come. But yet, we're still trying to experience as much of that abundant life in the here and now as we possibly can, right? And we're trying to do so no less in a world that's fallen, broken, and incredibly, incredibly messy. This is where the Psalter is so important. In the midst of that fallen, broken, messy world, Lord, I want to know Ashray. I want to know well-being in my life. And apart from you, I don't know well-being. I'm dysfunctional. <laughs> I, I, I go errant. I get off course. My thoughts go rogue. My heart grows dismayed. Lord, teach me ashray. We avail ourselves to this instruction manual is how blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That's exactly the purpose of the Psalter, that you would know Ashray. As we're rendering praise to God, there's well-being flowing over our lives as we're living faithfully before him 
as he's instructed. Let's just kind of spend now a moment just to appreciate the structure of these five books. Because I think an appropriate question is, well, are the Psalms different from book to book to book? And the short answer is, is yes, they are different. And it's important to know at this juncture the context in which the Holy Spirit arranged these hymns into the five books that we now have. You see, when they were compiled as the five books that we have, it was in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, they weren't all constructed during the exilic, post-exilic era, but they were all compiled into the five books that we neatly have today during this time. And the question that was pronounced and emblazoned upon the hearts and minds of people in that day, you can just imagine, if you are in captivity, what is maybe a question that you are asking yourself in that moment? You tell me. How long, O Lord, right? What's that? Is God faithful to his promise, right? How long? And we go to the book of Revelation, right? That, that answer, that, 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 that is answered. Um, how long, O Lord? Constantly being asked in the psalm. What else? Why? Okay, excellent. A lot of questions that you're pondering year after year passing by. And you're in the midst of being disciplined under the heavy hand of God, right? For your unfaithfulness. Where is God's faithfulness? God, where is the promise that you gave to David, right? As that question is being asked, guess what the Psalter does? It speaks into that question. It addresses that question. For instance, you take a look at book one, which is Psalm 1 through 41. It's all about the establishment of God's kingdom, right? Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2, but also not only the establishment of God's kingdom, but how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which was initially David, and now we know this side of the cross to be Christ, the fulfillment, and the one who will be established upon that throne forever and ever, right? 1 Chronicles 16, 2 Samuel 7. You move to book two, and it shows how the, that kingship covenant with David is effectively transferred to Solomon, right? Psalm 42 through 72. When you reach book three, Psalm 73 through 89, everything's going well, the kingdom is flourishing, and then you have the end of Psalm 89, which is the end of book three. And there's this question. Many of you just mentioned it. Where, O Lord, is the faithfulness that you swore to David? That was a real, raw, natural question that they were asking in that day. Right here, Psalm 89, 49 is the crisis point. Everything was going well. Captivity ensued. Year by year by year passed by. Where, O Lord, is the faithfulness that you swore to David? Everything feels like it's collapsed. And this is where God's people were. So that books four and five, listen, this is what books four and five do. They teach them how to live in the absence of their messianic king. Where, O Lord, is the promise that you gave to David? Book four, Psalm 90 through 106 is really the heart of the Psalms. Here's how you live when your faith says one thing and your experience says something else, right? Your faith says there will always be a Davidic king. And your experience in captivity is preaching to you something very, very 
different. So how do you live? You live by faith. That's why in the midst of books four, you know what, what phrase, what drum is beat in resounding fashion throughout book four of the Psalter? The Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. Speaking into that. How do you live when your faith says one thing and your experience says another? Faith, faith, trust. Your God has not abandoned his promises. We have neighbors today that, that no doubt look at our lives and say, you know, Wade, you, you tell me that your God is good and you tell me that your God is in control, but I, I'll give you one, but not the other. You can't have both simultaneously. And why do our neighbors say that, that are not in the Lord and don't, don't know the Lord? It's because they watch the news, right? And for us to, to preach and proclaim, and rightfully so, that our God is good and in control, and that means a world to us, It doesn't resonate with them because they look at the world around them and it screams to them something opposite in their very short-sighted, unenlightened view, right? Without the Spirit of God, of course they see life on this fallen planet that way. But for us, the Christian life is one of faith and not by sight. No doubt all of us struggle from time to time when we read one thing and Yet it doesn't just seem to fit our circumstance and we have to do something at that juncture. What do we have to do? Well, we have to paraphrase Paul. We have to let God's word be true and our circumstance is a liar, right? God's word is true. I run there. I rest there. I stake my life there. I will walk by faith in what God has said, believing in the end that it will play out exactly as he said it will play out. The Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. You move to book five, Psalm 107 to 150. It's basically conveying that you know that faith that you have that God reigns? Well, that faith has to have rubber that meets the road. It has to be a living faith. You have to live out that faith in your daily living. And that's why right in the middle of Psalm, or basically book five of the Psalter, what psalm, famous psalm, is in the middle of, right in the middle of, 119, right? Which is all about what? God's word, God's commandments, and keeping God's commandments, right? Your faith that the Lord reigns has to be a living faith. It has to be carried out in daily life. It has to show up. It demonstrates itself in keeping the commandments. Then you have the grand doxology at the end in Psalm 146 to 150, right? Where they all start and stop with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? Psalm 150 literally has that phrase in some form or fashion 13 times. It's sort of a big deal. We're going to end this this Psalter in one way or another. We're going to do so soaring. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord is literally the way the Psalter ends. And rightfully and justifiably so. Let's turn our attention to Psalm 1. We've covered the benefits, why we need it. We've got about 15 minutes to maybe just kind of spend some time in Psalm 1. We've looked at the structure of the whole psalm. Now we're just taking a look at one tree. Now, obviously in 15 minutes, we can't exhaust this tree. We can't look at every branch and every tree or every, every, every branch and every leaf, right? Uh, but I do want us to pay particular attention to one specific image in this psalm itself, Okay. 
And as we do so, obviously we're going to do so for our edification and instruction. Part of this is to prepare us for the rewarding journey ahead as we spend the next five or six weeks in the Psalms. The Bible is full of images for God, right? You just think about the Psalms in general. What's the most famous image for God himself in the Psalter? The Lord is my shepherd, right? Even the unbelievers know Psalm 23. So the Bible's full. The Psalms are full with images for God. And those images teach us not only about who God is, but also how he deals with us. You've got other images in the Psalter as well. The name of the Lord is a high tower, right? The righteous run to it and they are safe. God is my refuge and strength of ever-present help in time of need. The Lord is a sun and shield. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. All of these wonderfully grandiose images teaching us about who God is and how he deals with his people. And while the Bible is full of images about who God is, and he teaches us through these images, he also teaches us what we are to be like through images, right? And I'm praying that over the course of the summer, the next five or six weeks, and I know the others who will teach specific Psalms, our hope and our prayer is that God would make us this person that is held out to us in Psalm 1, okay? What does God want your life to look like? Look at Psalm 1. What does it say a person who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, what does it say that person is like? A what? A tree. What kind of tree? Firmly planted where? By streams of water. Lord, make us trees. Good trees. Healthy trees. It's not a complicated image for us, but it's a beautiful and, and wonderful image for us as well with many, many dimensions. Let's, let's just look at a few. Four dimensions of this tree. Living life like the tree of Psalm 1. One, you are a living tree. Okay? What's fascinating here is that this is an image that when we kind of think back at the very beginning of our Bibles, we think back to where life all started, the first book of the Torah, the book of Moses, right, the book of Genesis, Genesis Genesis 2, in the middle of the garden, there are two kinds of what? Two kinds of trees. One is the tree of life, right? And God placed it in the middle of the garden because he wanted to remind Adam and Eve perpetually every day as they were walking through the garden, why he created them. God's original design was for you to have life, a full life, a holy life, a blessed life, a fulfilled life, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know it. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things? For God's glory, for his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and keeping his commandments. What condition did God create our first parents? He made them holy and happy. (laughs) What happened to our first parents after they rebelled against God? Instead of being holy and happy, what happened? They became miserable and sinful. Here's the point. 
God didn't create you for sin and misery. God created you to be holy and happy. And the tree is a beautiful reminder of this, a holy life and a happy life, an abundant life, an ashray kind of life, a blessed, enriched, wonderfully fulfilled life where holiness and an abundance thereof begets and creates an abundance of happiness, right? You think about it, how happy and how holy were Adam and Eve before the fall? Perfectly happy and perfectly holy. In heaven, how happy and holy will we eventually be? We all look forward to perfectly happy and perfectly holy, and yet we live in between those two worlds, do we not? How many of you, nevertheless, want to be more holy? (laughs) And how many of you want to be more happy in this life right now, even in its fallenness and its brokenness? God has given you a roadmap to know this kind of enriched, wonderfully sweet life. It's called ashray. How blessed is the man. Well-being in every area of your life. A living tree. Secondly, an enduring tree. Like a tree firmly planted. It's a wonderfully sweet image, right? The winds of adversity are going to blow. Yes? Inevitable. And how many of you can control when and where those winds blow? Short answer is none of you, right? The hurricanes of Florida, the tornadoes of Texas, go outside and try to control any of those. And just in the same, you cannot control when adversity and suffering and pain and anguish enters into your life. It comes and it goes, unscripted by you, but scripted by another. Those winds of adversity range from anything from physical to financial to relational. And no doubt, even as we rest under Psalm 1 and we look forward to the Psalter here in the next few weeks, there's adversity that even now exists in this room this morning. And the image here for us couldn't be clearer. When the wind blows, what happens to this tree, to this person who delights in the law of the Lord day and night? They stand, they're strong, they're enduring. Not so, not so the wicked, right? We, my kids memorized Psalm 1 a long time ago. Fletcher, if you know my Fletcher, he's super animated. And I can talk about him because he's at camp right now. But everything he does is uber animated, like uber animated, eyes wide open. And he would yell out, not so the wicked. It's, it's like chaff and the wind blows and drives away. Uh, anyway, sorry, I, I got into a point of recollection there. So it's not so like the chaff of verse four, right? The chaff simply blows away at the slightest breeze. Why is that? Chaff's not alive, is it? Chaff's dead. So when it blows, what naturally and intrinsically happens? It's shriven away. The man who delights in the law of the Lord is radically and wonderfully opposite to that. He cannot be moved. She will not be moved. God wants you to be like a tree, which means he wants you to have life. He wants you to endure. And no doubt all of us need endurance in some area of our lives this morning. 
Some of you may be in a relationship and you don't know how you're going to continue. Some of you have chronic pain, persistent, ongoing health conditions that is a cruel enemy to you. Some of you are raising children. You are a parent in a world that has you deeply troubled, right? The counsel of the wicked is very loud. The path of sinners is bold. The mocking of God is nauseatingly pronounced in the day and age in which our kids are, 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 are raising up. And what happens to us as parents is that we're naturally and understandably, we can be given to terror and dismay. What's going to become of my children in a world that is so diametrically opposed to the will of God? What do we do? Here's what you do as a parent. You live like a tree firmly planted. And by God's grace, that gives rise to other trees that are firmly planted. That's God's doing. Your doing is how blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And every facet of your home ought to be permeated and saturated by that. Lord, this home's going to be a tree firmly planted. And the Lord will do what he may with your children, okay? Obviously, we pray ardently for their salvation and their faithfulness in life. Such as possible because our God is good, amen? This is a living tree, an enduring tree. A tree firmly planted. Third, it's a nourished tree. Like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This tree is tapped into a profound resource. And so if you're going to have endurance and if you're going to be teeming with life, you have to be tapped into this resource. Now in this psalm, the tree is drinking from streams of water. But if you're the psalmist, what are you drinking from? Verse 2, his delight is where? It's in the law of the Lord, right? The living tree that endures is the tree that drinks from the word of God. The faucet is always on, always running. You cannot possibly begin to live in your own strength, in your own wisdom. You have to have the source of life-sustaining endurance, which is the word of God itself. Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The most high is in her midst. God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. Love that. She will not be moved. Streams make glad the city of God. A nourished tree. Fourth and finally is a fruitful tree. Lord, would you make us this, this summer. The blessed man lives a life of wonderful, wonderful significance. You'll notice that this tree is not only planted by streams of water, not only firmly planted, but it, what else is happening to this tree from Psalm 1? It yields fruit. Excellent. What else? It doesn't wither. It yields fruit and it produces leaves that do not wither. You'll notice that the person who's radically and wonderfully indwelt by the word of God has fruit and leaves that do not wither, meaning that everything he does has eternal significance, lasting value. I don't know about you, I, I, that kind of life sounds amazing to me. That everything I do has eternal significance and lasting value. I think as believers, we want to live a life that counts. We want to live a life of significance. I, it, the book of Ecclesiastes, in some regard, we're kind of hardwired that way. There's these gnawing things inside of us just made in the image of God. We, we want to have this kind of life. 
And this tree's fruitfulness, and I love this because Jimmy already mentioned it. It produces leaves that do not wither. You know what's amazing about that? A leaf that doesn't wither is a leaf that holds its condition despite everything else that's going on around it. Good times, bad times, triumph and trial. His his leaves persist. His fruit remains abundant. It doesn't come and go because of circumstances. It's constant. I don't know about you, I, I, Lord, make me this kind of person this summer. We're going we're gonna to be in all sorts of different kind of psalms. Psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, messianic psalms here in a couple weeks. All an instruction manual. So I would encourage you to spend this week, right, as you're making your way through God's word, be praying that for us, for yourself, for this church. Lord, make us trees firmly planted. Can we do that? Excellent. Go ahead and bow your heads. Let's close your eyes. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the ways in which you enrich our life. We thank you that we have a book to turn to. We don't come and and stand before the creativity of just men. We have a book, a truth, reliable, constant, unfading truth that we can rest in. Uh, We ask for mercy and forgiveness. I think, Lord, we're part, part prompted and convicted now, no doubt the, the humble reaction from Psalm 1 is that, Lord, I, I, I've not been an individual who's meditated on your law day and night. And no doubt there's been residual unfortunate byproducts and effects that have rent, been rendered in my life because of a failure to do just that. Lord, we thank you that there's mercy and grace found in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, you cover these failings. We sing that song, Christ is covered over failing. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We also ask that you would motivate us and stir us this week. Lord, mark us with faithfulness this week to be Psalm 1 type people. We want to know Ashrei and we want to know Ashrei to your glory. Would you make it so? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.